are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. Welcome to the show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and living in fantasy Europe, but with wizards. This is Season 6, Episode 7, Why Is Your Fantasy So Real? I'm Adam Thomas, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Carrie Combs. Hey, Carrie. I think that's the first time I actually saw what we were titling the episode. And when I say we, I mean you. <laughs> you and I wrote like it. That I we... did write that. Oh, did I? Yeah. Well, I was smart about that, but I like that we followed it, pre- preceded it with wizards. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, I don't want to just but... live in fantasy Europe. I want there to be some wizards. No, there's got to be some benefits to being in a fantasy book, which might mm-hmm. just be wizards. But today and in the next episode, we're talking about the creation of fantasy worlds. So this is going to be a little bit more meta than our normal conversations. We're going to cover a lot of different books, movies, mostly books, it seems like in our notes, talking first about why they might be bad fantasy, why that might be a problem. And then our second episode will be about good fantasy, good world creation, and what makes world creation good uh, as far as followers of dirty Christians go. So we're not going to be breaking down anyone's magic <laughs> systems or like Sorry. criticizing fantasy You, you just said nerdy Christians, but it sounded like dirty Christians, like hardcore. Oh no, I have a little stuffy today. So <laughs> dirty, dirty Christians, dirty Christians, reading all those fantasy books, not those. I mean, those might come up because they're a part of um, the genre. Yeah. So uh, um, I, I think that good and bad is maybe not the best words to use here. I think helpful and me. helpful and unhelpful might be better. Mm-hmm. Like when we're talking about one of the things we want to talk about over the next two episodes is how our fantasy worlds help us to imagine our way into a better real world. Right. Like, like yep. how do these fantasy worlds, how does this creative process of writers thinking about what a world could be? help us to imagine how the real world could be. And so in the first episode, we're going to talk about how authors have um, imagined the fantasy world to be really like the real one. In a very boring way. In a kind of boring way. In a very unhelpful way, as Unhelpful say. way. Um, Much better and, nuance, and, thank and you. And in the second episode, we're going to talk about um, some some other properties where the author has imagined a new world in really interesting ways that can help us to um, bridge that imagination into the real world. One of the best things about reading fantasy is the things that we recognize in it that are models and similarities to our own worlds and the things that are very different. And when an author carries their own unconscious biases into their fantasy world, there's a lot of unexamined things that are coming in that they're just assuming would be normal in any world, their fantasy world included. And that's what we'll talk about. So I think looking at these and realizing that part of us reading fantasy and maybe going along with these unconscious prejudices or assumptions the authors make help us check our own assumptions as well. So let's get into it. Our scripture quotation for today is from Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. Why are the nations in an uproar? Why do the peoples mutter empty threats? Why do the kings of the earth rise up in revolt and the princes plot together against the Lord and against his anointed? Let us break their yoke, they say. Let us cast off their bonds from us. And our quotation from Nerd Canon comes from the film Serenity, which is the movie that that came after the short-lived but wonderful sci-fi series Firefly. Uh, This is um, near the end of the movie when they finally reach the planet of Miranda, uh, which is their 
they're getting they're trying to get there to figure out what is causing river so much psychic pain and they find a hollow recording after walking through the town of of basically these uh skeletons that are just sitting at their desks and lying down and it's really creepy and they find this hollow recording and the doctor in the recording says this right before the reavers attack and kill her she says these are just a few of the images we've recorded and you can see it wasn't what we thought there's been no war here and no terraforming event the environment is stable it's the pax the g23 paxilon hydrochloride that we added to the air processors it was supposed to calm the population weed out aggression well it works the people here stopped fighting and then they stopped everything else they stopped going to work they stopped breeding, talking, eating. There's 30 million people here, and they all just let themselves die. I think one of my first introductions to this topic was when I was reading all some of the D&D books as a kid, not even a young adult, just probably way age inappropriate. And I read The Daughter of the Drow, which is about the Drow Society in D&D. And in that, that they were elves, but they were dark-skinned elves. And there was this whole plot about them being evil and return and coming out of that. And I remember as a kid, even then, finding that to be very uncomfortable. And it's only now as a player, and especially as someone who pays attention to these things and now we're learning follows the updates that D&D has been having that we're learning about how much of the initial system of Dungeons and Dragons was based on a lot of real world assumptions and prejudices. Right. Yeah. Those drow, the drow you're talking about who live in an underground world, their main city is called Menzo Baranzan, which is just a cool word. I'm so right. glad you know that. Uh, I don't remember that. Um, the, the main character of those, of, of a lot of the drow books is Drista Erden. It's one of the famous D and D characters. Um, and yeah, th that their society, the drow society is evil. They follow an evil God and they have literally black skin, not, not dark skin, but black skin. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, so we just see a, that's like a, a prime example of a real world prejudice filtering its way into a fantasy property. And as you said, D and D over the last couple of years specifically has been recognizing a lot of those harmful tropes and is working to, to change them. It is definitely a prime example uh, of of what we're talking about today. We also see it in um, in the Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't believe that Tolkien was right in writing the his fantasy world. I don't think there was anything consciously nefarious happening. But if you look at the way Tolkien uses the words black and white, the those the the use of those words fits into larger racist historical narratives. Mm -hmm. equating those terms with badness and goodness right anything yep. everything in in lord of the rings that's black is bad and everything in lord of the rings that's good is white except for the black arrow that bard shoots at smaug in the hobbit that's the black arrow and it's good and except saruman the white who becomes bad yeah and he turns into saruman the many colored so but Ooh. when he is white he is still at least ostensibly a good guy so he's prejudiced against queer folks too. Well, gosh, Tolkien, again, <laughs> that didn't exist back then. Sorry, the rainbow, the rainbow. Oh yeah, did not. 
it was the not part of not the exist. culture in 1940 I, whatever i think what you said about nothing intentionally nefarious is an important part of this conversation um because that's the pro- that's the problem it's not intentional when creating these new worlds that are so beautiful and intricate and completely fantastic in so many ways it's kind of lazy to just import the same systems of prejudice that we have in our own world of making i'm thinking about um our conversation on woke what we called jokingly woke disney when mm-hmm. they redid aladdin and they took out that initial song about the you know barbaric middle eastern setting um and removed yeah. that one stereotype if you're going to make go to the trouble of creating a whole new system of languages and a beautiful landscape and all these different peoples can we not just be a little bit more creative and i think that's the intentionality of how you create those worlds is so important and a lot of what we see simply comes from the authors taking their own um their own prejudices their own assumptions and just assuming that's normal so yeah black magic bad white magic good where does that come from? So here's just 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 for our listenership, uh, so they understand what we're talking about here. Let me just do a quick list, okay? Oh, oh, okay. Right. I love a list. Yeah. So the evil Nazgul or Ring Race are first described as the Black Riders, right? They wear black cloaks and ride black horses. So by contrast, we have the White Rider, who is Gandalf when riding Shadowfax, the Lord of all horses. Shadowfax. This is interesting. Here is described in the book as silvery gray, but in the Peter Jackson films, is pure white. Ah, interestingly enough, speaking of Gandalf, he is first described as Gandalf the Grey because of his gray clothes, hat and beard. But when he returns to life following his defeat of the Balrog, he takes on the new moniker of Gandalf the White. So his triumph over such evil has elevated Mm. him from gray to white. And then we talked about Saruman earlier. He's described as the white uh, and the leader of the White Council. Uh, And uh, so thus Tolkien is setting him up as a good guy. But by the yep. time we know the truth that Saruman has been corrupted by the knowledge of the Palantir, he takes for himself a new name, Saruman the Money Colored. So his whiteness is broken apart, and he claims dominion over all colors. Mm. Interestingly and then enough, there's and- Radagast the Brown. Oh, did I did I interrupt that? Radagast the Brown is kind of a joker. Yeah. So then we have the language of the evil land of Mordor. It's called what? Mm-hmm. The Black Speech. And uh, Gandalf will not sully the beauty of Rivendell by uttering black words. The entrance to the land of Mordor is called the Black Gate. Black Gate. By contrast, the gleaming tower of Ecthelion, the highest point of the great city of Minas Tirith, which the good guys defend, is called what? The, the White, White tower. tower. All right. And that's just uh, that's a, a smattering of all of the mm-hmm. uses of black and white in the Lord of the Rings. And again, this is not nefarious. It's just the way Tolkien Tolkien's language system equates good with good with white and bad with black and because i am steeped in a tolkien world myself you guys i've read mm-hmm. his books so many times i as a fantasy author imported some of that same bias into my own early books mm-hmm. and into my own creation of a fantasy world when i first created the world of Suleril, which my fantasy novels take place in uh i wasn't really thinking about well, if this was made into a movie, who would be playing these characters? Mm-hmm. Which is how I always think now when I'm writing books, I'm always casting my books first with actors. I always cast them. I have pictures of them up, ready to go, mm. you know, um, so that I can describe them. So in my book, The Halfling Contagion, which we've talked about on this podcast before, Reeve Feldensire, the bad guy, is played by Idris Elba. 
and he's, uh-huh. he's just in my brain. He's Idris Elba. Mm-hmm. He just has to be Idris Elba. Right. Um, but when I first created this fantasy world, I wasn't thinking like that. And so um, it wasn't until I was writing novels and trying to describe people mm. that I realized that in my brain, everybody was white because mm-hmm. I'm white. And mm-hmm. that is so there was that normative take. Right. right. Um, and it wasn't until I went back and I read my first book with a more critical eye, The Storm Curtain, I realized that I described all of the people of color in the book with skin tones and all the white people mm. with no, I just didn't describe them at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it, they're, because they're it's normative. normal. Right. They were so white. now that book has a description of the white characters, same as the copper skinned elf and, you know, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, in in that first book, the Storm Curtain, there is the orcs who are the bad guys. They they're um, kind of their their um, secret police are called the Kernik Zav, which means black mask. Oh, okay. and it could have been any other color, but I chose black mm-hmm. because it's the one that is scary, right? At least in my in my bias. Um, so I imported some of that same real world bias into my own fantasy stories because I wasn't really thinking that hard about it. And it gets, so colorism is definitely one part of it. And that gets complicated when you were talking about Gandalf kind of being reborn. My first image was of a baptismal garment of an alp. He's coming back with this new life, wearing this clean white garment. And we have a lot of descriptions in scripture of Jesus being in the son of man, being in a robe white as snow with no blemish. And I, the racism in the way that America has created it did not exist when the Bible was being written. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, in all these com- in all of these, because I never took Greek, in all the descriptions of light and dark, they're not speaking about color. They're speaking about quality of light, correct? correct. Like shadow yeah, it, and it's lightness. Always about, it's always about like imagine a world where you can't just turn the lights on. Mm-hmm. And that gives often. you the that gives you the idea of you know being being in the dark, like the with no moon or whatever that's scary mm-hmm. because there's literally no way to see unless you have a candle right. uh, so we always have when we think about the the lightness and darkness imagery in, in scripture we're always talking about day turning into night and mm. the scariness that the darkness possesses because we cannot see somebody or some animal coming to hurt us right so they're they're talking about light the light as in like visual spectrum rays triumphing over lack of light, not necessarily the color white, which is a light color, the way we would describe tone, uh, color tone. I'm mm-hmm. not making much sense like here. They're different color, yeah. hues of color. And then which we as 21st century Americans apply to skin tone and people and whole societies. Mm-hmm. And it just spirals out from there. So when they say like light triumphing over dark, it can be used in a very supremacist way. And that's not the context from which it originally is, but all of that imagery, the white baptismal garments, the the light coming into the darkness does get imported into things like Tolkien. Um, and when you talked about, you know, just imagining everyone is white, I picture first and foremost, A Song of Ice and Fire, which is extremely Eurocentric. Westeros is basically fantasy Europe and they don't even have wizards. They have maesters and that's not nearly as cool. <laughs> um, but all, but that's like the civilized, the normal place with the knights and the monarchy. And yeah, the civilized Essos. place where people kill each other all the time. All the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas like 
where we talked about this in our episode about um, the house elf liberation in Harry Potter and Daenerys quote liberating all of the cities of Slaver's Bay. She's being a white savior, going mm-hmm. to free all of these uncouth, uncivilized people. And part of her journey is finding beauty and complexity in the society she's adopted into the Dothraki. But the way that the world is set up is like that's the exotic, far away. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's an east and west component, which is also fairly lazy, which just goes to mirror what we have in real life. And again, why am I reading fantasy? I don't want to read about real real life. I want to read about something smart and well-crafted. And although Westeros is an interesting place to spend some time in, wouldn't want to live there. Yeah. It is just fantasy Europe. You talk about uh, well-crafted fantasy, and mm. and that makes me want to bring up Patrick Rothfuss and The Name of the Wind and The Kingkiller oh, Chronicles, yeah. right? Because those books are very well written from a craft standpoint. The, the actual, mm-hmm. the quality of the writing is great. And a lot of the world building is really interesting. His magic system is super interesting, yep. right? Um, with the, you know, the the way they draw the Symp- power out sympathy. of their own bodies and the sympathy and, and the rune, what are they, runes or something? Or that's not the word he uses, but they like etch things into things yeah, and then yeah. they make stuff happen. It's been a while since I read the book. But so he's got some really cool and interesting stuff. It's definitely fantasy Europe. And then we have a university where there's basically only men and the the three or four women that are there are tokens who exist just to reflect the main character. And it's like, okay, mm-hmm. wait, why? Why create a fantasy world where women aren't allowed to go to school? And like I mean, all the masters are are old are men, are old yeah, men. Old That's men. What I was I was just rereading the except um, for El Eladin, but yeah. The yeah. admissions scene. And it's like the the people that you're getting into college with that are giving you the exam are just all these men ranging mm-hmm. from Eladin, like middle aged to very ancient. Yeah. And I'm gonna admit when I pictured it. I pictured almost everyone except yeah, for like Alex Adal as white. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that's, I believe, aside from quotes like actual skin being described as pale, there's not a lot of description of skin tones aside from the ones who are not pale skinned. So we have the, the we and we have these tropes of the, the few women characters there are in that book. They, they fall into really tropey categories, right? You have the manic pixie dream girl trope. Ugh, Dana. Right? What? Well, I was going to say Ari is the Manic Pixie oh, Dream Girl. She's I guess also they, they kind of both They're are. They're both are. <laughs> Denna and Ari. Debbie right? kind of is too. Yeah, they're all, you know, so they all kind of fall into the same fantasy written for, you know, you assume for young, white, awkward men who weren't able to get dates. And part of the story, right, is it is a first person narration in the past, it's a, it's a retelling. And part of the interesting thing is like, how much of this is true? How much of it is the main character like bolstering himself, seeing things through his awkward teenage eyes? Um, you know, are these women all really in love with him? Who knows? Right, uh, so right. I think there's that's interesting. But there's, narrator in this, there's yes. an unreliable narrator, but then there's also like an unreliable author where it is kind of an insert self in a lot of ways. And it's not until he gets to like the Ademri that you see a completely different non-patriarchal society. Right. And there are women in that society who are just as capable as the men, right? If I'm yeah, remembering. His, I think his teacher is female, his, right? Yeah. And that they have a pretty egalitarian. Then they have, well, I think it's, it is specifically like 
women in charge, if I remember, except, and then they also have the weird thing where they don't believe that men contribute to childbearing at all. Right. And that's, that's a whole <laughs> weird part. We don't want to talk about wise men's fear for okay. many reasons, uh, but so, King Killer Chronicles university, yeah, such a cool place to spend yeah. time. And why are there no women or people yeah. of other genders? Like, come on. Yeah. So the, so the question we're not, we don't want to just harp on this and carp on this and so forth. We're, we're trying to shine a light here in this episode uh, so that when we get to our next episode, we're, we're kind of trying to remedy a problem that we see in a lot mm-hmm. of fantasy, right. Which is just um, a lack of imagination and how to create a world because it's just, you're just creating a world that's too close to, the one that we have now, when we do talk in our next episode, we will talk about, you know, oppression. It'll just be mm-hmm. oppression that looks different than the one, you know, the, the kinds of oppression that we have in the real world. More um, interesting, oppression. More, more interesting oppression. <laughs> oh, um, good. I mean, Cause you need conflict in a story. So we're not going to, you know, there I mean, is, I that. don't think you do. I would read just like both going to university and having a spectacular time. I would read <laughs> the heck out of that. My favorite part of the Harry book Potter books are always the first 20, you know, first third before things get bad but i'm a weird reader don't trust me so what other what other ones do we want to talk about so red wall i've never read but mm-hmm. you inform me there's a lot like D, a lot of species racism where just some characters are, or some whole species are just evil yeah so let's just let's let's stick on that for just a minute the mm-hmm. idea that your biology contributes to your morality now there's definitely different cultures have different mor- mores, right? In the real mm-hmm. world, uh, and one of the things about becoming a mature adult who is worldly is is looking at another culture and going, "That's different from mine." Doesn't mean it's bad, right? Yeah. But in these, in a lot of these fantasy stories, what we end up having is because there are different, literal different species that are all sentient, mm-hmm. like in D and D with you know orcs and elves and dwarves and all that stuff we end up seeing these uh, these species and the biology of these species contributing to the, the way that they are allowed to um, be good or bad. Mm. Um, and so in the Redwall books, there are good creatures and bad creatures, and the bad creatures tend to be carnivores, and hmm. the good creatures tend to not be carnivores, tend to, tend to be herbivores or, or, you know, whatever, omnivores. Um, so you have mice and squirrels and, you know, hares and all these other little woodland creatures, mm-hmm. otters, badgers, who are good guys. Otters and then you are have, carnivorous. Well, yes, but in these stories, they, but they eat, eat fish. A, they eat a lot of fish, right? And fish are not sentient <laughs> in the Red Wall world. Okay, uh, thank you. But, and then on the other <laughs> side, the bad guy side, you have rats and 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 uh, stoats and parrots and weasels and foxes. Oh, yeah. And lizards in a couple of stories, frogs, I think, in a couple of stories. Uh, and they are always bad. They're the, always the bad guys. And then the mice and everybody else are always the good guys. And there's mm. even one story in Redwall called the Outcast of Redwall where a member of one of the bad species is raised at Redwall Abbey, which is the good, the home of all mm. the good people. And the whole story is about him not fitting in because he's he's just incapable of behaving well. And oh, the people in Redwall don't really allow him to fail mm-hmm. because they just assume that it's his nature to be bad. This sounds a lot like a film we have talked about on this podcast, which is Zootopia. Yeah, let's let's jump over to Zootopia then. 
where it's again a, a multi-species animal society and in their case the police force is all of the carnivores and we learn about judy who is a bunny and wants to be a cop and the kind of herbivores versus carnivores and the attempt to that the, the society that the carnivores are being framed for all of these bad activities and the attempt and people were just more likely to assume oh of course they're the ones who committed these crimes because they're bad they're carnivores they have to be kept in line yeah and and that's like and i think zootopia is an interesting one because it it's almost a satire in a way mm, it's i think it's intentional it's, it's intentionally commenting yeah. on the real world um with profiling and and it's a it's a movie about bias and overcoming it as a, right. So we probably which, should have put that next episode. Yeah, we can talk about it again next time. It's a time. bridge piece. Sure. <laughs> um, all right. So let's talk. Oh, we, we already talked about um, black and white binary in Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to mention it in a couple of other books. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, but I think it's important to, to restate um, the use of black and white in a few other places. One of them, of course, being Harry Potter 3 with the name Sirius Black. Mm-hmm. Um, doing a lot of heavy lifting to make you afraid of him mm-hmm. because we don't see him on the page until the end of the book. Um, and if his name was Sirius Green, you wouldn't be afraid of him. Yeah. I don't I don't think. Uh, and the other one is in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I think is a fascinating uh, place where we actually have a, a person described as uh, with the word white, the white oh, right, witch. The white witch. Um, she is... She's called the White Witch, and I and I it's so interesting because it's the opposite of Sirius Black in that the first time you meet her mm. with Edmund, you're supposed to like her. You're supposed to like her. Oh my gosh, I never thought about that. Yeah, and um, the red herring. Yeah, so I think that's fascinating. It's it's deploying the words white and black to play on the reader's expectations. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, interesting. And, and it, it it would be interesting to read some fantasy, and we'll talk about this again next week. Um, not next week. Next time. Um, <laughs> next time on the podcast, um, where the author works a little harder within their mm-hmm. world building to connote um, scariness in other ways. Mm, like, is there a way be... within the world building? that's unique to this particular world that makes something scary without having to rely on a real world application of racism mm-hmm. to make that happen within a fantasy setting. That makes for some really compelling storytelling. I have, I've just now thought of a couple of examples, but I'll save them. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit. We kind of touched on it earlier with the orcs and with the Redwall character being raised in another society, but I was thinking about C.S. Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet, which we've talked about. That's the one where they're on Malacandra, a.k.a. Mars, and they come across, uh, the main character, Ransom, comes across three different species. And I was putting them on, I was putting this on the fantasy that's interesting and better fantasy because the assumption from the bad guy is, oh, the species that's kind of the philosophers and abstract thinkers, they must be the ones that are in charge. So he wants to go talk to the Sorns. Um, When in fact, I believe the the Hrosa are in charge. They're the storytellers um, and the poets. Um, But then I'm also thinking, so there's a biological difference between these species, like the Fiffeltrigi, who are the building creatures and the craftsmen literally have like physical implements that on their bodies that make it easier for them to do those tasks. Mm -hmm. 
but also that each species becomes a monolith. Like if you're a Soren, you can only be this philosopher and abstract thinker. If you're a Harasa, you're only interested in dancing, poetry, farming, and fishing. Um, and thinking about D&D, that ancestry, like your genetics and your skills are tied together in the way that the system is now. So when I played a half-orc who was raised by halflings, I didn't get any of the halfling traits um, or skills. Um, just like not all dwarves are really interested in mining and gemstones, unless they were <laughs> raised in that society, perhaps. Um, my half-orc was not able to get any of the halfling benefits. So I'm curious in future editions, um, and I believe they do this in other systems, uncoupling your species from the skills you get. Like there might be some physical characteristics like strength or speed, mm -hmm. um, but the cultural ones being tied to the the species that you pick is I think a little lazy. Yeah, like like in D and D, if you are a Goliath, you are most likely going to be over six or seven feet tall, and if you're right. a halfling, you're probably going to be three and a half feet tall. That's the and species. So you That's, will be yeah. a small creature as a half small size, you know, technically within the game mechanics, and mm -hmm. a medium or large size creature in other words. So yeah, I mean, um, but in the real world, you know, humans are all different sizes. <laughs> That's you know? true. Yeah, and you know, um, and being from one part of the world doesn't necessarily make you less or more likely to be taller or shorter mm -hmm. um, than anybody else. Nor, nor your being born into a certain phenotype does not mean that you are going to be more or less likely to enjoy certain careers or skills. And that's something that we have that has happened in our world of looking at people based on their created race, the race that was invented to categorize people and saying, darker skinned people are only able to attain, you know, minimum standards of education and they're all there, you know, and that's why they're put to work on farms and enslaved. That's that was the kind of made up reasoning to justify the system of slavery. Um, that the idea that they could not attain to any higher learning. So just leave it to the white folks who are in charge. And I think that seeing that in other fantasy systems where it's just because you're a certain you know, body type means you're only going to have certain skills is not how the real world works. And it's interesting to see that get complicated in other ways. And in, in, I mean, the characters that some of our friends have created who are one, one species in D and D, but raised by a culture of another and have that complexity to them. I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of good homebrew that's allowed for that kind of mishmash and uncoupling of those two items. So let's let's finish up today with Harry Potter and and remind our listeners that this is a two parter. We're going to talk about a whole other side of this topic next time. A lot more cheerful. <laughs> We've talked a lot about Harry Potter on the podcast in seasons uh, many seasons ago because we read four of the Harry Potter books and did a whole tiny season on the other three. Uh, so we haven't done episodes about Harry Potter, but there's a lot to mm -hmm. say about Harry Potter within this discussion. And I think we've talked a in the past about the intentional use of blood status as an analog for racism in our own world. There's also, there are a lot of ways though, that in JK Rowling's literal fantasy Europe, there's a lot of, of, of her own prejudices that get imported into the system. For example, there's not a lot of diversity in the school, either racially, ethnically, or um, religiously or other types of, of diversity. It's 
it's from Harry's perspective, right? And he's friends with two white British wizard friends, and that's just his perspective. So there might be a lot going on that we don't see. Um, and I think she has played on that to try to get points for diversity without putting it in there. Yeah. The biggest example I can think of is, oh, yeah, Dumbledore's gay. Didn't I tell you? No, J.K. Rowling, you didn't tell us at all. You didn't give a single dang hint. So you don't get points for being inclusive <laughs> just by yeah. saying after the fact that, yeah, Hermione could easily be black. That's true. And you did not write her that way. Mm-hmm. And that that or, you know, Anthony Goldstein is Jewish. Okay. What impact does that have on the story? We don't see any of it on the page. And that's frustrating. Plus, there's the whole house elves as a slave race. That's that's probably the biggest problem. Yeah, we've, we've touched on that in an <laughs> earlier have. episode of the podcast. Um, yeah. So, again, we, we when you think about the assumptions that authors make about what's normative, mm-hmm. that's kind of what we're talking about writ large in this episode. The when you are writing from a perspective of the um, dominant cultural group, mm-hmm. um, then it's so easy to assume that your experience is normative and have that experience filter its way into your stories, as I was talking about with my own stories earlier on. Uh, and so it's incumbent upon authors, I think especially writing for young people, to broaden our own experiences so that we we can bring in to our own fantasy world so much more than just the the narrow um, application of what we think is normal, which is why it, it, it's so wonderful that publishing nowadays is working hard to bring in more marginalized voices into the conversation and really work hard to publish books from other perspectives. And not only so bringing in other voices, um, other systems of fantasy worlds, other types of characters and different ways of doing things, all of that makes for a richer reading experience and a lot more that we can learn from when we read these books, because we read them for fun, but we also read them to learn a little bit more about our own world. And if all we're doing is repeating the same stuff that we have in our own world, it's not really functioning in that way. Right. And so we let's can um, do better. We can do better. And we're going to do better next time on the on the podcast. So let's close up this episode. And those of you listening on the day it releases, sorry, you have to wait two weeks. But uh, I assume most of you are going to listen to this later on and you can go one to the next. So here we go. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. Please give us a rating or review on your podcast app of choice so others can discover us too. You can find us at nerdychristians.com. You can find all nine of Adam's fantasy novels on his website, adamthomas.net. Sign up for his bi-monthly author's newsletter to receive a free PDF of his novella, Highest Stakes, a memoir and manual about my life as a vampire hunter. And as always, you can find both of us right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. The world is built on patterns of behavior, both personal and societal, which are reinforced down through history. As we partner with God and God's mission of healing and reconciliation, may God grant us the fortitude, creativity, and hope to break death-dealing patterns and weave new life-giving patterns of freedom, justice, and peace. Amen. Amen.